You're listening to Cinepunks. This episode, The Kid. I'm your host, Robert J.E. Simpson, and I'm joined today on the sofa by Dr. Rachel Kelly. Hello. And in the swivelly chair, mastering all the knobs, it's Ben Simpson. <laughs> Hello. You laugh at me like that's not what you do. I do. You spend the whole recording session twiddling the knobs. Well, not the whole session. So, um, we have not touched silent movies on the show before for some reason, and that's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about Charlie Chaplin's 1921 first directorial feature film, The Kid. I mean, you say for some reason, you know what the reason is. You're not very keen on silent movies. No, I'm not keen on silent movies. I'm just essentially a very lazy film watcher. Anytime I mention a silent movie to you, you roll your eyes yes. and you go, do we have to, Robert? Because it's hard to watch. It's a totally different way of watching film. Uh, we, we, I mean, you, we learn this from the, the earliest interactions with any kind of media. We, we, we'd learn how to watch films, and in this era, it involves sound, and it involves dialogue, and it involves interacting with the dialogue, and the, the Hollywood continuity system is built around, these days, dialogue. So watching a silent film is a different experience, and I'm lazy. I just want film to, like, trickle through my eyeballs and into my brain. I don't want to have to work because it's all about visuals and not so much about the the dialogue because you're not you, you can't switch yourself off look away somewhere else check out your phone exactly you have to actually keep your attention on the screen How am i supposed to check facebook and watch a silent film at the same time i can't do it no you literally can't do no. it however i think chaplin silent films are a bit different in mm. a lot of ways um i, I don't know you very often that sort of histrionic acting that the silent cinema demands it's a massive switch off for anybody that's more accustomed to the more naturalistic style, I mean naturalistic with those obnoxious air quotes around it but um, the naturalistic style that's developed particularly since the, like, the 1950s um, and, and Brando and, and the uh-huh. likes of that um, but Chaplin is quite opposed to that kind of histrionic acting He's he's about sort of acting with the eyes and with the expression and um so it's it's a it's a bit more like what we're used to and when you when you say histrionic just for those people who don't understand what that word actually means because this is a show for everybody not just for academics i I suppose i've just grown up with the word histrionic being chucked at me a lot of the time so (laughs) i assume that it's a more widely used word oh the the very overly emotional the the emotional to the the extent of being extremely over the top and not particularly natural looking okay ben you are not a silent film watcher no at all at all have you ever seen any before uh, you watched this this week before no i know actually i might have seen like like scenes from like the old uh-huh. Dracula or whatever you know yeah that was a silent film wasn't it oh Nosferatu yeah 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 that um no I'd never never really watched one until until yesterday this is a funny thing as well because I go back down to you and I grew up in the same household yeah, yeah. but as a kid you know the the 10 years difference more or less between the decade between you and me yeah I mean as a kid they would rerun Charlie Chaplin and Lauren Hardy films on TV fairly often. Silent movies were not completely um, omiss from the TV schedules. You know, they were still something that you would have seen. But a decade later, we've gone into satellite television, we've got the proliferation of channels, and actually in the mainstream, they no longer screen these sorts of films unless it's some obscure thing really late at night or 
possibly talking pictures. Because it involves a lot more effort in watching films than people are used to these days. I mean, you only screen what you know people are going to watch. If you're any kind of sensible programmer on television, you've got to. You, you, there's no point in putting something on which is going to turn everybody's television off. But it's not to say that silent films are not something that you still get, or there's not elements of silent cinema within the films that we watch, surely? To elements be fair. Of silent, okay, sorry. I really enjoyed it. This is one of the surprises. Ben texted me last night and said I actually really enjoyed it. What was he said? It was a breath of fresh air? Yeah, it was a breath of fresh air. Um, um, so normally, anytime I've sat and watched a film or, you know, like I'm in the house watching a program, I normally just sit and watch it. But there, my wife will be sitting texting on her phone or looking, scrolling through Facebook or Instagram. I'm like, you not know, just watch the film. It's like, so I don't really get the need to sit and scroll through my phone. Um, but I was just sitting here in in my man cave <laughs> and watched it. And I was like, this is great. Um, I don't know what it is. It's just like there was that you didn't really need to think. You could just watch what's going on. And then the music as well, um, going along with it. Um, yeah, it was, it was great. I, I, love I, I, I love the fact that you have responded to this so positively because I was convinced that was whenever I it. said they were going to do this, that you were going to go, no, no, it's not for me. Hey, well, the amount of stuff you've got me watching. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I like to film. We're get, I like to think that we're giving you a free education here in terms yeah. of cinema. Yeah. And every now and then, you know, we'll throw in something completely random that you like that, that actually apparently our listeners also <laughs> like. Freddie Got Fingered, still their most popular episode yep. to date. Yep. Still haven't forgiven you guys for you're, it. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> um, so if you've never seen The Kid, um, just it's plot synopsis in, in an nutshell. Uh, there is a lady who um, basically has a kid out of wedlock. She uh, gives it away. And then she has second thoughts about it. But in the process of her just abandoning the child on the streets, uh, it gets taken away, gets picked up by Charlie Chaplin's tramp figure. And uh, he then looks after it. They basically have a little scam together where they're kind of just working the streets. And eventually they try and take the child off Chaplin's character because he's not fit to look after it and the kid is a bit sick. And there is ultimately, uh, you know, a, a reunion of the family unit by the end of the film. That's it in a nutshell. I mean, even whether you know the plot or not, I don't think it spoils it because actually no. the whole joy is in watching this film progress. So what we'll do for the next little bit is we're going to talk about, about the themes in the film, we're going to talk about how it was shot, and um, just our general response to it. And if you've never seen a silent film, hopefully this will encourage you to watch a little bit of it. Now, you will notice as well, if you've been listening to some of our episodes recently, we've got a little bit more clips these days than we used to. Because this is a silent <laughs> film, I realise this is more like an old-style episode, we don't have clips to play you. Um... It's a silent movie. It's very difficult. We could play a little bit of Chaplin's score from 1972, certainly, but um, ultimately that's not really going to give you an idea about what's going on. So, yes. Yes. Well, it does kind of... A little, yeah. So, this film was made 100 years ago. It was released in 1921, but it was filmed between 1919 and 1920. So, we were actually recording this podcast 100 years on from its production, which is a nice little number. Um... It's also Chaplin's first feature. He's already been making a number of films for SNA and Mutual, little sort of two-wheelers. These are films that last between roughly 15 minutes and half an hour for the most part. And uh, he's been doing very, very well at this. And he has a deal with uh, First National Productions to make a feature. And that's what he does at his brand new studio in LA, just off Sunset Boulevard. 
which is a lovely space. And today is now the home of Jim Henson. Wow. Oh, cool. It's lovely. I, I went to, when I was in LA last year, I deleted this. True story, I deliberately stayed in the nearest hotel I could find to the studio. Yeah. <laughs> it's like literally two minutes walk from there to the studio itself. And they still have all the original Chaplin buildings out the front of it. So you can just, some of them actually turn up in the film. That's really cool. I didn't get to Sunset Boulevard when I was oh. in LA. I walked along Hollywood Boulevard. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, I stayed on Hollywood Boulevard, which was also really cool. Uh. But yeah, that's that's actually way cooler. Well, the Chaplin Studio itself, it still has um, so it has a little picture on the front, painting on the front door of of Chaplin as the tramp, and then below that they have his handprints, his footprints, and his signature. Um, and it was the first one to do it wasn't actually the uh, Chinese Gumont Theater. Mm. Chaplin was the first one to do that in Hollywood. You know, that's the thing with the old lady oh, hands yeah, down. Yeah. That was him. He did ah, it first. Wow. Yeah. And um, because it's been taken over by Henson, above the gates they have uh, Kermit the Frog in tramp uh, costume. Oh, cool. A huge sort of uh, figure. Well, I just love the fact that that place still exists because, you know, so much from this industry is ephemeral. Mm. You know, it's there for a little while, the sets get pulled down, um, but this stuff still remains intact and you kind of feel that that presence must have I mean, been there. A lot of it went when these, the, the financial models um, for the studio productions um, and that, that sort of integrated model of production distribution um, was was made illegal so a lot of it had to be sold off and a lot of that stuff went around that period so mm-hmm. it's nice that that's still there beautiful um so that's just a little bit of background to the film itself i mean he had he'd been working there for a little while um and he made this and basically had free reign to do it he, he just went off and, and shot whatever he wanted which is a bizarre way of making film in a way yeah, they freaked out though, didn't they? By halfway through, they were like, oh, "Why is this taking so long? What could possibly take so long? We're making silent cinema here. It takes like a week maximum." And like nine months later, he's still going, "No, no, 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 no!" Didn't he shoot? He shoot? He shot something like fifty times the amount of material that ended up in the film. Yeah. Um, what, what and don't wonder the, they were freaking out. What was the reason behind that? Um, I think it's because it's his 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 creativity meant that he I sort of had that free reign, and he obviously is working in his own studio. But he worked on this film without a script. He's a perfectionist as well. He's he's constantly looking for the correct. Absolutely, yeah. He talks a little bit about it in his autobiography as well, uh, about the process. And, I mean, he, he doesn't go into huge amounts of detail, but basically he would turn up on set, would gather the crew around him, and they would literally sit on the stage and bounce ideas back and forth. He would sort of, like, fire stuff off and try and get people excited and find a story. Mm. And this is one of those ones that they made up as they went along. They shot it you know, sequence after sequence in the order that you see it in the film nowadays. Is that why they've got the wee, you know, that that fade out, you know, the wee circle? Uh-huh. In oh, they are, they, this, uh, it's an Irish shot is what they call that. Yeah. Is that why they do that at the end of the scene then? Um, sometimes, I mean, it's a way of marking a transition. It's something that comes from that silent era. You get it a lot, you know, it's like the wipes and the dissolves and it's the technology that's available you at the time. You know which film popularised that, of course. Which film was that, Rachel? Oh, Birth of a Sodding Nation. <laughs> the Birth of a Sodding Nation. Birth of a Sodding Nation, one of the most <laughs> phenomenally racist films ever made. Never but, seen it. No, it's, it's no, about three hours long. Don't maybe. worry yourself. <laughs> it's it's, it's fantastically so important to film history, unfortunately, yeah. but it's really not worth a watch. It's basically a film about the Ku Klux Klan made by the director D.W. Griffith. Back and they're in the, the hero, okay. by the way. The yeah, Ku Klux Klan are the heroes of the film. Wow. Yeah, it's it, it's bad. But then you quite enjoyed this, so actually maybe silent film is your thing and I'll drag you around the house and we can sit down and watch the Blu-ray. 
Um, yeah, yeah. It's it's a long watch. Uh, D. W. Griffith was associated with this film. It's his car that the baby is left in. Is it? I didn't yeah. know that. So it's it's a Griffith's car that's actually used in the film. So right. there was a kind of collaboration of sorts between them. Um, but basically, at this time, just before production starts on this film, um, Chaplin loses a child. Oh. His firstborn son uh, lives for a couple of days and then dies. And that seems to have been the real trigger point. So most of the critics agree. And I think Chaplin himself sort of tacitly acknowledges this yeah. in terms of actually wanting to produce this uh, this film about a child. And nobody who looks at this can't read something about that loss of fatherhood into the way that that relationship works on screen. And yeah. also professionally, him and Jackie Coogan um, are quite a, a combo, I think. That kid is amazing. I mean, he's 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 literally... It, it's, it's breathtaking how... Good, he is. Maybe he was what six, seven years old when he filmed that. Something like that. Yeah, I know you, he's yeah. got a background on the stage, but he's still, you know, he's primary school, early primary school, and he's just so natural. And the the chemistry between him and Chaplin, it's it's evident. I mean, it's what makes the film is the clear sort I, of. I think that's why I really liked there. it. Yeah, like it, it just feels really wholesome or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like it sort of moved me in a way that I haven't really been moved by a movie before. Okay. Like I don't know, just watching the the relationship. I know you can't hear any dialogue or anything like that, but like it's just the way they act towards each other and But you you, know. you guys both have kids as well, so I yeah. think that you're probably your take on it is maybe slightly different as well. So I mean as a father yeah. with a young son who's not that different in age from, from Jackie yeah. Coogan was at this point. I mean, is there an element of you seeing something of your own relationship or what you hope your relationship is with your child within that, between the two of them? Probably, yeah. yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, I, I don't think any parent could watch the scene where they are ripping his child from his arms yeah. physically. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I don't think any human could watch that, but particularly a parent, it's that really primal response, like, I will kill every one of you motherfuckers if you touch this kid. I will literally beat you to death with all the stuff I can find. And his the chaplain's... That there's the the visceral pain on his face. I mean, it makes a lot of sense when you understand that he's working through the loss of a child himself. Mm. But even still, the the... the it's it's tangible it's mm. painful to watch his desperation as he's trying to keep this child close to him and then desperately chasing the 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 truck over the rooftops so he's got to get this kid back yeah between Chaplin and, and, and Jackie himself the, like I'm watching you see Jackie in the back of the truck mm. and you can I mean you can it doesn't take much to lip read what he's saying mm. it's I want my daddy yeah Give me my daddy. I mean, just yeah. over and over again. He's just and the tears streaming down his cheeks. Um, Jackie's father was also in the film. He plays a number of parts within it. He plays the devil character. He's also the tramp in the hostel that tries to nick the money from Charlie's pockets. Mm-hmm. Um, so he turns up a few times, and one or two of his scenes were cut whenever Chaplin re-released this in 1972. But Chaplin was having a little bit of difficulty getting Jackie to get in the right zone for that sequence. And apparently um, his dad basically had a word with a kid. And that's what it was that, that kind of resulted in that. And afterwards, Chapman asked, so what did you say to him? And what Jackie, oh, Jackie's father told him was that if he didn't get it right, he was going to be taken away and put into one of those institutions. 
So that's what really set him off. He actually wow. thought he was going to be taken away from his own actual father wow. and put in a home. Chaplin then had to console Jackie and just say, look, no, it's okay. You know, it's it's not true. And Jackie just says, my dad, I, 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 tears streaming down his cheek. Where it says, oh, I thought my dad was only joking, but obviously really, really, really upset. Yeah. I mean, that seems like such a horrible, cruel way to get a response out of a child. Um, but I think one of the things that really strikes me watching the film is that so that wasn't acting; that was real. That was that was real. Yeah. I mean, when he's calling out for his daddy, he's calling out for his daddy. Yeah. Um, it's pretty pretty grim, and and I think I suppose in a way we sort of forget because, well, and what little privilege we have in terms of sort of where we are today as sort of vaguely working middle class people, um, we're a bit removed from that era of of sheer poverty. Mm-hmm. of that space where you know literally you're lucky to find anything there's no social security mm-hmm. and the risk of losing your child is very very real and of course it comes i mean there's a deep reflection of cha- uh, chaplin's own childhood there as well yeah. that deep deep terror of being well as i suppose it's the opposite way around his mother was taken away when he was quite little um was it schizophrenia it was severe mental illness anyway and mm. she was incarcerated twice once when he was seven and then permanently when he was a little bit older than that. Um, he, did, he did eventually uh, bring her over to America um, much later on in life. And, and she came over and she was, he says whenever she came off, he hadn't seen her for about 10 years. Um, and at the point where she came off the, the off the boat, I guess, um, he just said he just saw this little old woman that he didn't recognise. Um, and she was still quite unstable at that point. Um, they nearly tried to deport her. Um, but she was basically... They, they managed to say of the government that, you know, she was allowed to stay as long as she wasn't taking up sort of um, claim benefits and stuff that he was going to look after. Mm-hmm. So that, but Chaplin comes from complete poverty. I mean, mm-hmm. he, it's the American dream. The American dream is that you go to America mm-hmm. and you become famous and you earn lots of money, which Chaplin did. Yeah. But he came from nothing. Yeah, a horrendous poverty. Where's, where's he from? London. London? Mm-hmm. Some's London. In fact, they don't have a birth certificate for him. Um, they've never been able to find it. His birth date is still under a little bit of ambiguity. We're not sure if it's under a different name or or what, or just ne- was never registered because at that time, um, it was not uncommon for children to be born and not registered. Wow. You know? Yeah. So that poverty that you see is all very very real. It's Chaplin reflecting on himself. So he's dealing with his own childhood poverty. He's dealing with his the loss of of a child, and those spaces that you're seeing. Um, in the film are real spaces for the most part those are real streets around LA the art tray isn't real though um, there's a little bit of set but I was looking last night there's a couple of websites that actually detail um, all the locations and so many of those buildings are actual locations within LA yeah. or were yeah. it's fascinating because I mean LA at that point well Hollywood itself at that point is what about as a city it's about 10 years old yeah yeah, I mean, there's literally 1905. If you look at old photos of Hollywood in 1905, it's orange groves. Mm-hmm. Literally, there's there's no city yeah. there. Um, and it's only as the uh, filmmakers that filmmaking was originally based on the East Coast, but um, for various different reasons, the Motion Picture Production Producers Association of America, um, by you know, tightly in the grip of Thomas Edison at that point, who's going around just trying to kill all the competition. So the independent filmmakers just take themselves off to the west where mm-hmm. it's still like a week's travel away at that point 
um, and it's really difficult for Edison to enforce his his patent violations against them. So that's why Hollywood goes from no, nothing basically to this huge, burgeoning, booming city in the space of of a decade. Um, cool. And yeah, nineteen nineteen eight nineteen nineteen twenty when this is being made, it's still very much a <laughs> up and coming city. I mean, it's it's more or less established by that point as as one of the big centres of filmmaking in America. Well, but yeah. but it is it's rapidly growing. There's yeah. a film I think, you can, I think it's on YouTube, um, which actually shows you Chaplin building the studio, and it's certainly on the the, the DVD and Blu-ray of the kid. Um, in 1917, that lot was, as you said, it's just basically farmland. It's 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 all greenery, mm-hmm. um, and then he starts building the studio, which is a, a huge space in itself. But if you go there today, I mean, it's just an all urban sprawl from mm-hmm. from everywhere. There's no greenery for for quite a bit, um. So that's the way it is. I mean, it's progressing very, very rapidly. This is a, a moment of transition. It's before the depression, which just ruins the American economy for a long time. It's before the war. Well, this is actually first. It's just after the First World War as well. So there is that sense of, um, I guess, difficulty. I mean, it's it's, it's certainly for for someone who's from Britain, they'll be much more aware of of sort of um, the trials and the tribulations and the, the sort of the way that people have been affected, and especially by loss as well. It's one of the things the critics have said is that, you know, in a way, people identify with the kid because so many people had lost people during the war that they could feel that that struggle. So um, they actually shot for 18 months. 18 months? 18 months on this one from start to finish. With a few breaks. And he went through periods where he was very, very active, working away, working away, really inspired. And then he'd have these little lulls. Apparently over Christmas 1919, he asked Jackie what he would like for Christmas as a present. And Jackie wanted to go back home to see his family in San Francisco. So they shut down the studio for a week to let Jackie go home. Um, That's what he did. Uh, Then Chapman has a divorce in the middle of all this. So his wife, who's... I think if we look back in context, she's just lost a child. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and that can put a lot of strain on, on situations she as well. She was a kid herself, of course. She was 16 yeah. when she married him, wasn't she? I think so. Something um, like that. Something to be aware about in terms of Charlie Chaplin. You know that we like to talk about problematic relationships and uh, yeah. you know the Me Too movement yeah. within this context. <clears throat> I'm getting the, that, that idea, yeah. Chaplin. young. All his wives were, I think nearly all his wives were considerably younger than he was. Um, what's that old joke? You know, uh, I, I like the young girls because you know the, uh, I get older, but they stay the same age. Oh, from Dazed yeah. um, <laughs> and Confused. Yeah, yeah. He's talking about high school. That's girls. it. Yeah, it's a really girls, uncomfortable yeah. moment. <laughs> um, so yeah, so it's a bit like that for Chaplin. So we, there's always this awareness that Chaplin's relationship with the woman in his life, and his second wife does actually appear in the film as well. She's she's one of the angels <laughs> in the angel sequence, which we will talk about in a bit. Um, Which angels? Is I think, the I, one I think she's the one that's given him the eye. Flirts for them. Oh yeah, shows shows a wee bit of leg. That's it. Um, so that is is very definitely uh, something that you're aware of when you talk about Chaplin, which is a problem, you know. But well, it was in this case we're choosing not to focus on that. That's a whole other episode. <laughs> but yes, so he goes through. There's a divorce that happens in the middle of this that complicates the whole process, and it seems to just stop him in his tracks completely. He just can't 
process what's going on, I guess. Well, he's also afraid that his wife is going to claim the film as in part of the, the divorce proceedings. Because she has a relationship with the people who are actually involved in First National, who have the distribution to his films that are basically paying for it. And um, she then starts making claims uh, in terms of what she wants as a settlement. And Charlie becomes aware that actually there's some sort of deal going on and that there's a very real risk that she's going to try and claim part of the film as her settlement. And so he then, this is once it's all been made, he then takes the film, he shoves it into a coffee crate <laughs> and he has it shipped to uh, Utah, to Salt Lake City. And uh, they, they actually hide out in a hotel and they cut the film in a hotel in Salt Lake City, which is totally illegal. <laughs> because at that point they're using nitrate film, which is very, very flammable. If you check on our uh, Facebook page, I posted a video um, a couple of weeks ago. Well, when we're recording this, I've posted a video recently uh, shot at the Slapstick Festival in Bristol with um, uh, actually setting fire to a little bit of nitrate film. Whoa. <laughs> it just goes up really, really quickly. Cinema fires were a very, very regular occurrence. It was a real risk. If you have a nitrate film in your collection today, you have to have it basically under bomb-proof kind of yeah. uh, I mean, they, storage. They, any archival nitrate films are basically stored under extremely controlled conditions at a location far away from the rest of the, the old films that are being archived. There's a, as soon as you look at it, it explodes. There's a BFI film I think they did a few years ago whenever they were doing stuff with their archive and they set fire to stuff and then they doused it in water and the flame still burns. Like, you cannot put it out. It's really, really dangerous. Um, and it, does catch fire quite easily. So them sitting in a hotel room, <laughs> cutting this film, literally physically, not like today where we've got all our digital technology. For this. Yeah. yeah. So according to the chaplain's description in his autobiography, um, they literally put bits of the film everywhere. All the takes are numbered as well. So they know this is like thousands of takes. <laughs> this is, this is, what is it? it must be 50 hours of footage that they're having to go through. I think I read that somewhere. Yeah, it's, it's at least 50, it's 50 hours, 50 hours of footage. Yeah. yeah. So they're having to go through. He says occasionally they would lose a bit and they'd spend a couple of hours looking for something underneath the chair. But it's literally just this, must be this room just packed with bits of film. I don't even know how you visualise this and you can cut a film from it. Mm. Yeah. He a says, packed it, with bits of film and if you sneeze, you're going to die. So if, they, if the hotel had known about this, they would not have been allowed to do it at all. They would have been kicked out. They would have been arrested. Because mm. um, this is all going on. So there's a lot of subterfuge in terms of the production process. In the end, he's able to strike a deal um, that he asks for, the studio decide to pay him, they offer to pay him, sorry, First National, not the studio because it's his studio, First National offer to pay him on the basis of his old three-wheelers. So they're going to pay him about $400,000 for the film. He's just spent $500,000 of his own money and 18 months of his life working on it. So he says, that's not happening. Mm -hmm. At some point, they realise that actually this film's going to be really bloody good. And eventually he manages to negotiate a settlement of $1.5 million plus 50% of any profits after they after the studio recoups their money. Mm -hmm. And the film goes on to make over $5 million. Wow. So like he Whoa. Was, I mean, this is This is 19, uh, 1921 numbers we're talking about here. It's yeah, adjusted for inflation. It's a lot of money. Yeah, that's a lot. It makes back, um, what's, 10 times its budget? Yeah. And he made a very nice profit on the back of that. On the back of that. So that's its that's its production history. Um I think I think we kinda need to talk about just how groundbreaking it actually is as as a as a film. As a piece of storytelling, yeah. I it, yeah, I mean I think it's I think there's a couple of things. First of all, I mean, like our picture of Chaplin 
Like, so, obviously, you've seen this now, but if someone said to you about Charlie Chaplin, what do you think of? A small guy and a big fat guy. That's Lauren Hardy. Uh, yeah, well, that's what I <laughs> that's picture. What you picture. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Wasn't the answer I was <laughs> So, basically, all silent movie guys for yeah. you are Laurel and Hardy. Yeah. Fair yeah. enough. <laughs> Rachel. <laughs> so, I don't, that's how I got into reading Asterix the Gaul. Um, because there, Asterix and the Laurel Wreath was the book that was, and I thought, oh, that's probably really funny because that was my experience. <laughs> so there enough. you go, Laurel and Hardy, more than just a comedy duo. That's pretty good. Literally all silent comedy is Laurel and Hardy. So Which is interesting because I don't actually like them. No, you don't. I thought, yeah. I, I, yeah. There's another podcast for us at yeah. some point. Um, if, if I so if I said Charlie Chaplin to you, what do you instantly it's picture? The Trump. It's, and I mean, I, when I was just doing, I assumed that like everything he'd done was the Tramp. I had no idea he retired the Tramp after mm-hmm. modern times. Yeah, started I, doing other things. Mad. I mean, that is technically the Tramp. I know it's not the Tramp, but it is basically the Tramp in The Great Dictator. Yeah. Oh, yeah. no, it definitely is. But he's also playing. But he's also saying it's not. He's, he's also playing his Hitler character in The Great yeah. Dictator. Oh, so it's, it's not actually the Tramp either, but yeah. it is also, it, it's the Tramp character, but, but mapped onto this little Jewish barber guy. So you basically have this, um, I mean, for most people, and I think for me as well, Chaplin is always going to be that that very iconic um, little figure with a little Hitler moustache, which was a Chaplin moustache before it was a Hitler moustache. So and did Hitler like Chaplin? They were actually born the same week in 1889. Um, so they were like, so it's a point whenever they do the great, when Chaplin makes the great dictator, which is a parody of the whole Nazi um, scene where he basically plays a Hitler character but there's this whole lovely uh, kind of parallel which we'll talk about when we do that on the show which we, we will do at some point and it's Chaplin Talks so Yeah, get... we were definitely doing The Great Dictator it's my favourite Chaplin film There you go right. um, okay. But yeah, no, so he this is the look it's, the, it's the, what we now recognise as a Hitler moustache yeah. um, it's the scruffy mop of hair it's the baggy not quite fitting suit and the little walking cane yeah, and you know. what about the oversized clown shoes? Yeah, um, I th- that's all part and parcel of it. I mean, I suppose the idea as a tramp, he's just picking up whatever he can get as he goes along. It's that vagabond kind of thing. Yeah, but it also gives him a little bit of um, makes him a comic ca- character to look at, mm-hmm. and it gives him a fair bit of flexibility in terms of, of, of sort of performing because he's a very physical performer. Yeah, um, and a lot of it's geared around the slapstick. This film's actually quite light on the slapstick. Well, yeah, but that's that's kind of my point is that you know for a character that's been so intensely associated with slapstick. I mean, that's, let's face it, that is that is the only form of comedy that exists in silent cinema up to that point, is slapstick. It's slapstick is ideal for silent cinema. Silent cinema is ideal for slapstick. Do you know what slapstick is? Physical comedy. Yeah. Physical, pratfully like, type like comedy. the whole, like, you know, fight scene. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's Pie in the face. Duck, ducking under punches. and It's very, very physical. It's very um, over the top. It's It's... Smash a guy in the head with a brick. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and he doesn't actually die. He just gets wobbly face. It's like cartoon violence. Yeah. It's like the Hulk, so even that guy was. Yeah, it's, it's like watching a Tom and Jerry cartoon. It's basically slapstick. Um, so that that just, for in case you weren't aware what that is, that's what slapstick is. So, But this film is one of the very first to realise that comedy doesn't have to dominate it can be part of an overall narrative story that involves dramatic elements as well. Mm-hmm. And the dramatic elements are, uh, that's what people 
love this film for is that that the drama, the pathos of that relationship, the drama of the separation, the drama of the reunion, um, and the love that exists between uh, the tramp and the kid. Um, and, and Chaplin is really groundbreaking in recognising that you can have comedy elements in a film that coexist with drama. Uh, it's so obvious now because we're so accustomed to seeing it, but he's going from um, a period where the norm is maybe 15 minutes of guys beating each other up, um, which, you know, done correctly is very funny indeed. But, you know, 53 minutes of people beating each other up interspersed with moments of the most incredible dramatic beauty. Uh-huh. It's it's true. I mean, I think I think a big part of that process is probably that transition from a you know a fifteen minute film to having to stretch out to an hour. It's not enough to just have somebody beat the crap out of somebody else, or to avoid beating the crap out of somebody else. You have to have a, an actual narrative, which this do, do does incredibly well. But but where he takes it is so tender. It totally. Um, I, I mean, it must have been a bit of a surprise as well for for audiences in nineteen. 19- 21 to, to, to sit down and watch Chaplin in this way. Well, I mean I think a lot of, of the enduring um, greatness of this film is it's it's a lot to do with Chaplin's genius no question about that and his recognition that a comedy film can be more than just beating people up but there's also a whole heap of luck goes into that because the chemistry of that relationship um, is, is what sells it ultimately it's what makes it believable. I mean the, the love between Chaplin and Coogan that just shines off the screen that's where the beating heart of that film exists and that's that's pure luck that's pure luck of finding two characters who mesh so beautifully together they do say that um, Coogan was the first sort of Hollywood child star as well he, he sort of this really broke the mould and Chaplin only got him by chance um, he'd heard that Fatty Arbuckle who's another problematic figure oh, we've talked so about on occasion problematic. um Fatty Arbuckle had uh, basically signed him up and Chaplin had already met Jackie at this point and he was like, oh, why didn't I think of that? That's such a great idea. This kid has so much talent. And then his producers, his, his team found out that actually it was Jackie's father that had been signed up by Arbuckle, not the kid. So he does a secret call around to say, look, can you get the dad in? We need to have a chat like ASAP. And they have to call around the studio, and eventually they get him after a couple of hours, and he comes in, and they say, "Look, you know, this is amazing. We we want to sign him." And he's like, "What?" And he's like, "Yeah, you kid, not you." <laughs> <laughs> and he's rather taken by this that actually they want the kid. And he says, "Yeah, you can have the little thing. I don't. It really doesn't not bother it at all." Um, and so and so they bring the kid in and they sign him up, and he's just brilliant. Uh, you know, I watch him and I just adore that little fella. Doesn't it doesn't it probably doesn't harm things that I knew him before I ever saw him as the kid because I was a big fan of the the, the Adams family as a kid. <laughs> oh, he, yeah, <laughs> he is Uncle Fester in the nineteen sixties Adams family version. Yeah, so before Chris being that beautiful, that absolutely <laughs> ethereally beautiful little child to being Uncle Fester, but also still a great uh, a great figure that just draws your attention. I mean, that comedy is still there; it's so impeccably timed, and as a, apparently he was. Um, as a, as a kid, he needed very little rehearsal. He's a one-take kid. You know, you could run it through a couple of times with him. He was a ghost of great mimic. So you could show him how you want something done, and he would just do it from that. So there's that lovely sequence where he's chucking the stones through the windows, and the policeman goes up behind him. <laughs> he's, like, hitting the policeman and just sort of 
looking very innocent, throwing the stone up in the air and then buggering off, which is just love. I love that bit when Charlie's up. I shouldn't love the physical violence against the kid, but when Charlie's kind sort of trying to push him out of the road with his feet, yeah. <laughs> just like go. And again, when they're in the bed together, uh, not in a dodgy way. No, there's nothing dodgy about anything in this this film. But they're sitting in that bed together in the Doss house. And, you know, I love those wee legs going in the sleep and they're kicking each other. And just, I don't know, there's just a real, um, it feels like very insimpatico. It's very much togetherness within that performance. Mm. We should probably talk about the downside of this film. There is a dark heart to it as well, because the film actually opens on uh, on quite a dark um, sequence. Yeah. You know. <clears throat> uh, see the um, uh, the fella, the painter, mm. at, at the start. Yeah. The, who has the picture of the woman, uh-huh. and then it falls into the fire. Yes. Tigger, that was. That's the man. So the the film opens up on. That's the only time you see him, isn't it? In the nineteen seventy two version, not in the original. Right. So. Um, the film opens up on on this woman who, uh, and it's a, it's a, a really simple uh, intertitle that tells you that basically her crime is basically having a child. So the implication is all there. She's had this kid out of wedlock. This is their 1920s. These sorts of things are not looked upon very well. Society is a big moral judger. And she looks very, you know, she's leaving the, the hospital thing where she's been in. She's walking off. And she just looks like she can't care for the kid at all. Um, and then she makes the decision to put it into the car of some rich people, which is a great idea. It's like somebody wealthy can look after my kid. She's actually being quite sensible and responsible. Only the car gets nicked. Oh, no, hilarity, hilarity. They find the kid, ugh, a kid, and then they dispose him by a bin because the kid is just disposable. Um, and then this one Chaplin's character finds it. Uh there were other sequences that were in the film when it was released in 1921 that Chaplin cut out in 1972 when he re-edited the film. So he took about 10 minutes out of the film. Now there's a still a bit of uncertainty as to how much was missing. Um, partly has to do with the speed up of the film. Film today is all projected at a steady rate. Back then the, the rates of films could change. So it's all, but film tends to be 24 frames per second a day. Back then it could range quite widely between something like 16 and 28. So over time, that speeds the film up or slows it down. Anyway, it's a technical thing. So Chaplin uh, comes back into the film. He cuts a couple of sequences out of it, and he puts his own score on it. So uh, we might talk about that in a second in terms of auteurs, because I think this is one of the parts where I argue that Chaplin actually is one of those few people who genuinely is an auteur. This is one of those parts where I have no counter-argument whatsoever. There's un- it's unquestionable that if an auteur is a viable way of looking at uh, discussing a film, Chaplin is an auteur. We'll come back to that in just a moment. Um, so he cuts this, cuts a couple of sequences out of the film that are quite interesting. He feels that he feels that the morality in the nineteen seventies is different to how it was in the nineteen twenties. This is a pre-code film. Rachel, you're very good on the code. Code's if you want to, really expl- a thing at this point, though. But it's it's, a, it's pre-code. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. You'd- so just to, to briefly explain to Ben what the code actually is and how it affects the industry. Well, you know how films are are really good at um, making people 
into bad people. You know how you, when you watch films, you automatically become a much worse person, and you know you didn't feel like going out and killing people, but then you see people do it on film, and you feel like you just got to go out and kill some people. Um, this is this is manifestly nonsense. Okay, it's a very very complex relationship if it exists at all between um, uh, human or, or child actions and, and and consumption of media. But anyway. Um, you know, this whole pearl clutching hysteria thing is nothing new. We go back to the 1930s when there's all this kind of moralising and, and oh dear, for goodness sake, won't somebody think of the children? And what's known as the Hayes Code is introduced. And the Hayes Code has, it, it codifies what can be shown on screen. So things like, you know, lascivious behaviour or lewd behaviour or, or lustfulness can't be shown on screen. No well, nudies. Yeah, I mean, anybody that's seen um, the 1934 Cleopatra film with Claudette Colbert, um, that was apparently, allegedly cut. It was filmed before the Hayes Code was introduced and released afterwards. I cannot tell where they have made amendments to the scene on Cleopatra's barge. That is full of like all kinds of crazy lustfulness. But things like um, uh, if somebody is acting in a criminal way, they must be shown to have their comeuppances for it and that's what leads to the scene that never actually ended up in the we're talking about vertigo um, and the way it just suddenly ends well um, the Hayes Code kind of stipulated that because your man um, that killed his wife wasn't seen to to get us comeuppance for yeah, it there yeah. he'd effectively been shown to get away with it so they did have um a, a, se- a sequence was shot between um Stuart and Barbara Belgadis where they under they're listening to the radio of your man being chased around Europe by the police so he's definitely going to get caught and be done for his crimes and Hitchcock was able to not get that released because of, uh, that the ending of Particle is where it is but that's the Hayes Code anyway the Hayes Code is the pearl clutching morality that says oh we mustn't do the thing this but at that point there's no rating system so the rating system starts to counteract that and then also as well people start going no this is nonsense you know this is uh, why live in sort of fantasy land that pretends that people never do things that are morally questionable regardless of what your idea of moral but anyway that's 1930s so um the kids released in 1921 it's 13 years before the Hayes code but it's certainly um it's it's in no way precedes the kind of moral pearl clutching hysteria i mean 1908 there's a big thing in 1908 where they closed down the nickelodeons in new york because they're corrupting the moral values of blatant classism because the Nickelodeons are the place where the, the working classes go and they're actually having fun for a change instead of living this really grim um, industrial revolution era miserable poverty stricken life but but oh no it's you know corrupting the moral fibre of the nation so they closed down the Nickelodeons in New York and that lasts as long as anybody might expect but yeah film has been trying to clean up its act for 20 odd years at this point or pretending yeah. to try so and clean it, up its act so we're basically talking about censorship within films yeah. we're talking about like things that you're not allowed to show certain kinds of behavior certain kinds of violence certain kinds of nudity are all not allowed mm. by 1970s things are changing again within cinema well you're in the hollywood new wave in 1970s which is all about the up yours morality codes it's a lot more liberal, but Chaplin obviously is a very old man by 1972. So his attitude and things is maybe slightly different, but he feels that things have changed and some things that were acceptable in 1919 when he's shooting the film are not acceptable in 1972. So he cuts out um, th- three major sequences. Um, there is a sequence at the start where uh, she is walking along at a, at a Proviance. Proviance. Um, after she leaves the kid. 
she goes to a bridge and it looks she's looking over and it looks like she's about to jump that's the implication that she's going to kill herself after having got rid of the kid she then encounters another child and it just sets her off and she realizes oh my baby my baby and she goes back to find the kid now you asked about the 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 partner the the painter mm-hmm. there is a sequence with him that comes back in later on the film so originally what we see is we see him in the flat there's a mention of him we clearly know that this is the man because he's described as the man and the, her picture which he has kept so obviously there's some sort of affection there drops into the fire he initially tries to retrieve it sees it's too far gone and just lets it go just wipes that out of his life there was a scene that was cut in 72 that shows them meeting up again um, when she's already a successful performer and he's a successful painter and they meet at a party in a big house in LA and they come. he comes into the room, she comes into the room he's already there and there's a look that passes between them that's really uncomfortable if you've ever encountered an ex in public and <laughs> introduced them by somebody else and you don't want to let on you know that feeling only too well <laughs> I'm on reasonably good terms with most of mine, so... Um. <laughs> most of them. <laughs> do, do, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> Ben's never had an ex. I've had lots of exes. <laughs> um, so they encounter, and then they go off to have this private conversation out on the balcony, and he basically says, there's a whole, there's a really kind of ham-fisted way of this book that says the past, and it opens up, and there's a page that says regrets, and they're talking about it. And obviously, and he's then apologizing for says like there's anything I can do, and then she says, "Well, you know, unless the kids and you know, the, 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 basically, I suppose if less they can find him because she knows that the kid is is somewhere and she doesn't know where it is." So they have that, and there is another sequence. Oh, it's part of that whole thing before she goes to kill herself, where she sees a wedding happening. She still has the kid at that point. She sees this wedding. And the bride looks miserable AF. And uh, she kind of goes, oh, I'm just going to get rid of the kid. It's it's very strange. But there was there was another sequence which I can't remember off the top of my head. There was another one. But yes, the, pain, the, 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 the painter dude does come back. Whereas I actually think the version that we have now is a bit stronger because she seems like a much more independent person. She doesn't need... And maybe this is what Chaplin was tapping into, was that he realised that actually in 1972, the idea of a stronger woman didn't need a man, actually probably was more in keeping with the zeitgeist at the time. Um, Bear in mind, his mother had a child out of wedlock yeah. that she raised yeah. um, as a single mother until she met Chaplin's father, mm. which... Sydney, you know, isn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah, from, from yeah, Sydney. The older brother. Yeah. Um, in his pub. It's which, in uh, South Kensington, London. It's very nice. Yeah, and... I mean, again, this is sort of the 1880s. To, to be a single mother um, with a child out of wedlock at that point. I mean, there was no. She just certainly didn't have any kind of an easy life. Yeah. Um, Hannah Chaplin. Uh, Chaplin still. She was. Yeah, she was. She did marry his father. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, so he he will have watched his mother uh, survive, mm-hmm. and yeah, I mean, survive and and go on to live her life. Um, as a single parent so he is predisposed to be not neither judgmental nor sugarcoating mm. anything about the sort of the trials of single motherhood in that era i think he's he's probably rather uniquely placed really to be commenting on because i mean there is no judgment afforded to this woman She's, as you say, I mean, the, the decision to abandon her child is taken with extreme heartache and regret, but it is very much 
framed as the only responsible thing she can do. She can barely keep, take care of herself. She's got no hope of, of getting any kind of work as a single mother. Mm. Um, what is the child going to do? Leaving him to the care of people who presumably will be able to, to afford to care for him. Fingers crossed, hopefully it's going to be okay. And then she goes on to success. It's not. This is not the thing that ruins her life. She goes on to success and she goes back and she, she uses her success to help people less fortunate than herself. Yeah. And she she engages in this quest to find the child that she lost. I think I think that's important is that, that she goes back, that there is a sense that... And she doesn't know she's gone back, actually, because she thinks the kid went off to rich people, really. Oh, no, in fact, she doesn't because she knows the kid's gone missing. Yeah, and since she collapses. Yeah, Yeah, because the car got stolen. Mm -hmm. So she knows that, but she doesn't know the kid is in the gutter. Yeah. Um, So there is, that that, that seems to be like a very genuine thing for her. Mm -hmm. It's a very genuine um, emotive response to to the circumstances. She's one of few sympathetic characters in that film. There are very, very few sympathetic characters. The kid is one, Chaplin is one, and she is one. So, mm-hmm. the the bit at the end, whenever she puts the thing in the paper saying thousand dollar reward, yeah, and then the kid, and then the, the policeman goes round, you know, wakes him up from his dream, uh-huh. um, and takes him to the house. Yeah, does that her accepting? I think you can. I suppose because him into the family because he cared for her son for five years by himself. I, I would probably read it that way because, I mean, the film leaves it open enough that we can put our own interpretation on bits and pieces of it. And I think there is an expectation. I mean, at all points you see that they judge Chaplin. They judge the tramp because he is it's a down and out. They tell him that he can't look after the kid and so they take the kid away from him. Even though actually the kid actually is doing really well yeah. with him. Yeah, fair enough. Probably living a life on the streets. Uh, like that isn't that bad but he's learning how to be an entrepreneur <laughs> you know he's he is actually eating they're yeah. not starving yeah i mean they seem to eat pretty well was yeah. a d- decent big, pot of food yeah. big, big pot a of food with a big massive lump of meat yeah <laughs> we'd all be happy with that this afternoon I'd be delighted with that. and then a big stack of pancakes in the morning yeah. for breakfast so, yeah. so I, I mean I, I those are some of my favorite sequences is the kid actually cooking I yeah. incidentally I, I wasn't aware that you could train them that young to cook so that's just that changes everything so <laughs> In a, in a few months now, we can check back, and Rowan's going to be kicking us all breakfast. He's not quite that old yet, but but yeah, yeah. Give give me a year or so. Um, I'm joking. By the way, I will not be putting my toddler child to cook pancakes. Sorry, Ben. It's, it's Eli's job. Yeah, he already helps. Oh, good, excellent. Um, but I, I mean, so clearly he is being looked after, and that affection as well. It's not that you feel like he's manipulating him. There's a real tenderness between those two at every stage. That that's. Obviously, was real, but it comes across on the screen. See, whenever he's eating the golden syrup with yeah. the knife, mm-hmm. and then he's like, "No, no, no, no! It, look, this is the sharp end. Turn it round to put it that way." Such a lovely little touch, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Um, which is again, you you keep your attention on the screen, and there's all these little kind of subtle gags and, and moments of tenderness. So that bit at the end. I mean, obviously, the guy who's in charge of the, the, the house is just a you know a chancer, and I think I'm like you do not deserve a thousand dollars until no. you you shit. Yeah. Um. So obviously, he takes the kid. Chaplin spends the night wandering the streets looking for him. Mm. I mean, you feel that. You know, he, he shows you how much he cares. Yeah, he's just got him back, and now somebody's taken him away again. Yeah, absolutely horrified, yeah. and I mean, he he collapses on on the doorstep of his own house. Yeah. Because he's so upset. Why can't he get into the house? That's what I was wondering. 
Oh, I, I just assumed that that was like on a, a short term rental basis, and because he's been carted out by the police, the mm. the landlord has just gone well. It's vacant again now. I assumed could be. Yeah, I I just thought maybe he he knew the door was locked, and therefore the kid couldn't be inside because he had the key or something. Oh. I, d- I don't think it, it, it probably doesn't matter. Mm. I think it's just important that he's out on the street, literally having spent the whole night. Mad dream sequence. Now this, I just don't get the dream sequence well, at the, all. Let's talk about the dream sequence in just a second because I want to kind of before I forget, I want to touch this bit about what you asked. So he then goes back to her house. Yeah. So again, grabbed by the scruff of his neck. Yeah. Wake up. So again, you kind of feel like okay, he's being judged again, and he's about to get arrested. Mm-hmm. I see no reason why he's not accepted into that household. Because the kid's brought out and the kid goes straight into his arms. And, and again, she's smiling. She's she's smiling from ear to ear and she basically welcomes him with open yeah, arms. I think the policeman gives him a pat. He does, well. yeah. yeah. Everybody's so, smiling. And not a patronising pat. It's yeah. like, actually, you know, you. I think. Well done. Good job. Yeah. The kid's still here. Nobody. He was abandoned, you know, and you looked after him. Mm. And he he clearly loves him. Mm. I. Look at Terry just thinking. And also, I mean, yeah, the, the kid loves him. The kid is the kid is basically she's she's going to be. Certainly, she's going to be amenable to doing whatever that child wants because she, as as the child's estranged mother, is wanting to rebuild that relationship. And yeah. as a kid, the kid's going to demand the tramp because that's his father, as far as he's concerned. So I see absolutely no reason, to, as as you say, Robert, no reason to think that she's going to be like, thanks. <laughs> Bye. Yeah. Good job for five years. Um, sod off. So I want I, my kid yeah. back. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, d- d- dream sequence. Dream sequence. What is that? I mean, it, it, kind of, <laughs> it was the only time I felt like I was watching filler. Uh-huh. I couldn't understand what he was doing with it at all. I mean, I, I loved it. It was just, I, I loved the detail in it. I don't know how much of it was deliberate. You know, the, the, the feathers being shed off the wings just every time anybody sneezed or breathed near them, um, whether that was symbolic or whether that was just the, the, the prop making. Oh, I think, <laughs> I think that's deliberate. He sits there and he, I mean, he's doing that whole comedy shtick he where he's, he's it, scratching yeah. it because yeah. he's always got these new wings. It's like, oh, I can feel the itch. And then as we scratch and they start coming off, I think that's but all. then all the, the devils come in and start trying to corrupt. I mean, I just don't get it. It feels like it belongs to another film. I think this is partially part of the problem with the way that Chaplin's working processes are is that he doesn't at this stage he's not working with the script ahead of time like we would and he's not storyboarded everything out he literally is coming in almost day to day and going right what are we going to shoot today this is what this sequence should look like let's start a couple of runs I like this shtick let's then make it and that's what they've done and he has had I think it's pretty obvious that he's had a lull at some point that there's been a point where he's got stuck apparently the, the stuff in the DOS house he had a real issue with he had the set there he knew he wanted to do something with it, but didn't know what way to do it. And I think this again shows when he does this sequence, because the sequence, as you say, does feel like it belongs to something else entirely. I mean, what what kind of I find striking about it is that this is a film with very, very sparse use of intertitles. You are able to infer most of the story from what's going on with the occasional little nudge from the intertitles. Uh-huh. All of a sudden, there are a lot more intertitles through this crazy sort of psychedelic freak out that goes on it's as though Chaplin's like yeah calm down this is what's happening look this is what's happening this is what I'm doing right now and the devils this is what the devils are so there there are a lot more intertitles in that sequence as though he recognises that people are going to be going what and and just feels the need to explain it I think there's a, a hearkening back as well so one of, again one of the bits that's cut out was her watching that uh, wedding happen and, and there's a point where she goes in front of a stained glass window 
and there's a Celtic cross behind her head, but all of a sudden the Celtic cross behind her head is framed like a halo and it just lights up, which sort of suggests that there's something pure about the lady, that she's got good intentions, that there is something there. So when you go from that to much later on in the sequence with the angels, there's definitely a, a religious, but there's also a spiritual kind of purity that's involved and invoked okay. in that. I All think right. that's well, yeah. If you're going to have that kind of weirdness in the climax, then I think you definitely need to call ahead earlier on in the yeah. film. That would have explained it a lot better to me if I was aware that this was dealing with religious. It's the seventies anyway. By the time this comes out again, it's the seventies. Everyone's on LSD anyway. It's fine. <laughs> it probably makes more sense. No, I kind of think it's used as like, um, you know. He's lost his child. He spent the, the the whole night out the streets mm-hmm. looking for him, and he's gotten back to his house and he's just so exhausted. And because he's had this tra- traumatic experience out in the streets, he's like fallen asleep and went into a, a dream state. Uh-huh. Had this dream, it's like the boy, uh, you know, the son comes out of the door, uh-huh. and he's like, oh, you know, he gives him a hug and all. He's like, what are these wings, <laughs> and then he takes him to the shop and he gets his wings. Mm-hmm. But then it sort of turns into a nightmare. Yeah. You know, because obviously he's still upset about his son. And I don't understand the whole playing the harp and the woman thing. Like, that I was a bit weird, like, but... Um, and then he gets shot. Like... Yeah. But I think it's like, you know... This is like longing to be with the boy... And then him getting taken away again. It, I mean, I, I kind of started to read it as him having almost died or being close to death because we, we associate angels with death yeah. and, and sort of heavenly views. Um, and the idea that he's going up and he's getting his wings for the first time. Mm. You know, that that seems like a you know a near-death thing. Bearing in mind, he's been outside in the cold all night. I'm assuming it's cold. I'm not. It's. it's, it's I know it's L.A. Yeah, it's <laughs> California. It's Southern California. <laughs> but, you know, one assumes that, you know, he's been out in the streets all night. He, you know, he doesn't have proper clothes and stuff. He probably isn't great. Um, so there is that sort of sense there. But there's also a kind of Garden of Eden kind of element with the devil coming in to, to present things. And which is almost harkening back to her and her relationship because again she's sort of sinned by having a child in the first place. Um and there's that weird moment where it looks like they're about to have a three way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the the big burly man's and it's like, Oh, it's fine, you can you can kiss, you can kiss him. him. Yeah. It's like ah la 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 now you're gonna get jealous. What what? Um, it's slightly awkward. <laughs> so say this is pre-code. This probably would. I can't see that scene being allowed after the Hays Code gets introduced. Again, have you seen Cleopatra in nineteen thirty four? Not anytime recently, Rachel. Okay. No. It's it's Do- Doctor Rachel Kelly. I should mention is an expert in films about Cleopatra. Yeah. Yes, I am. No, no, anyone who's ever heard this has ever picked that up before. Oh, we haven't. You haven't given me any kind of chance to talk about films about Cleopatra. And yet we do. Well, I, I think this is the first time I've ever talked about it. No, it's not. <laughs> Isn't it? No. I believe you, Ben. I don't believe him. Right. <laughs> Shh. So, yeah, so there is something kind of uh, almost close to death, but also this, this sort of Garden of Eden. And I think it's maybe something about the purity and how that can get corrupted. Like their relationship, his relationship with the kid is, is pretty damn pure. Yeah. And then somebody else comes along and they screw it all up yeah. by making it complicated. And wonder in many ways if that's just all it is. Like I don't get how he, like, like he's he's been caring for this kid, and you know whenever the doctor comes, yeah, and 
He's like, I know what will help. Let's cart him off in the most aggressive way possible. This is how it was. I mean, like, this is if nothing. If I if you take nothing else away from this film, like that, should, the way they shoved them in there, yeah. doesn't look like they have that child's no, they don't health. No, oh, flip. even even whatsoever. as recently, I mean, have anybody seen Boys from the Black stuff? Mm, yeah. Or what is it? Is it Fly Away Home? Is that the one I'm thinking of? Could be. Where she's basically, I mean, that's 1960s. And again, you're basically talking children being ripped out of the arms of loving parents because the state has decided that the parent is unsuitable by reasons of poverty. It's, I mean, it's, it's a shocking reality. I mean, it's the grim reality of what's presented there, of what life was actually like for people who were less fortunate than yourself. I mean, Chaplin maybe it's a genius moment of Chaplin to have this tramp figure, this downtrodden, this down and out who people would normally shun um, actually be such a, a you know a lovable rogue, to be somebody who actually can be seen to be tender and caring and emotional and responsive it, there's a lesson there for, certainly for someone who's actually entering this situation of privilege that he is, mm. you know he's you know getting an absolute fortune for, for his wages, he's in a very very well, well placed part of society, but he hasn't lost sight of where his origins are, of, of what life actually is like for other people. Yeah. So I just find a quote from him there where he says, isn't it one of the saddest things of all to become used to luxury? Yeah. I mean, that's, that, that to me is... That, and I, I don't know, I mean, I, I would tend to know more about Capra than Chaplin, but I think there's lots of similarities there as well. And people who have come from extreme poverty and have have used a natural artistic talent as a vehicle to enormous wealth and are never able to reconcile that wealth with the knowledge of the suffering that exists in the world and the suffering that exists due to poverty mm. uh, and that strikes me very much as where Chaplin is as well, it's like yeah obviously I'm not going to turn it down, I know what it's like to literally have no idea where your next meal is coming from and whether or not you're going to have a roof over your head tomorrow but at the same time I'm not comfortable knowing that I have so much when people I grew up with have nothing. Mm. So there we go. Uh, I mean, this is a film that is uh, 100 years old. Uh, this is the oldest film you've ever watched, Ben, I believe, It at this is point. the oldest film I've ever watched. And, and I like, would definitely watch it again, actually. That, that I think, is, is actually quite, <laughs> quite good praise. Not the response I expected, yeah. um, but it may encourage me to introduce you to more silent movies. Yeah. Thanks, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> That's it, Rachel. You're going to have to work a bit more. You'll have to watch more silent movies now. But they, they are such a, a rich text. I mean, there is something absolutely gorgeous about suddenly removing dialogue and, and making your brain work. That's, well, it's uh, the, they call it the purest form, don't they? Is it, was, it, was, that, was it Hitchcock called it pure cinema with uh -huh. the dialogue? It just felt so, like, because I'd never seen really yeah. a silent film, it just felt fresh and new after seeing, you know, all the films I've seen so far. It was just like, it was just nice. To, to watch something like that and just actually just I didn't really have to think all I had to do was watch isn't it amazing how much of it you just get though from watching it you yeah. don't need it explained to you like you let your brain do a little bit of work and it can make all the joins you need with very little help yeah, yeah. it could so easily have been manipulative and saccharine that yeah. film in the hands of a less skilled artist it definitely would have been particularly in that era when the the impetus was to overact everything for for this the camera because there was no dialogue what it is is just the most touching 
beautiful love letter to the relationship that can exist between a father and child. Yeah, and, and even with Chaplin's score that he does in 1972, he doesn't play it for just all the sentimental notes. I mean, there's a lot of humour and lightness in there too, and a lot yeah. of fun. Yeah. Um, the one thing I want to very, very quickly touch on as we wrap this up is we did talk about Chaplin briefly as an auteur. Yeah. So we're, we're those who listen to the show from the start, um, whether you know film or not, will be familiar with our concept of the auteur, the idea that the film director is the one that you regard as the author of the piece. And this is obviously a very problematic relationship because films are made by many, many people. Mm-hmm. Heck, the three of us in this room have worked on a film together and not one of us, I think, would claim that we own it. Well, Rachel might. No. Yeah. No, certainly wouldn't. Um, Fight you for it, though. So, you know, that is the reality. But Chaplin, actually, I think, is very deftly into her. For what script there is, he writes it, he stars in it, he's directing it, he's producing the damn thing. And then, you know, come come the 70s, you know, he's editing it and he's uh, he's actually writing this music for it as well. Yeah. What does he not touch within well, this, this film? And this is it. I mean, that's the you know my key objections to the auteur uh, to auteur theory is that it ignores many realities of the filmmaking process, both artistic and financial. Mm. Uh, Chaplin is he's not quite financing it, but he is effectively financing it, uh, which which removes that protest that the studio has the final say always. Uh-huh. Um, he's he writes it, he directs it, he scores it. It's his idea. It's he's acting in it. I mean, what other creative input has gone into this film? I, if anybody's going to to sort of stand up and claim the title of auteur, I think Chaplin's definitely among the, the few who is is unchallengeable in that respect. And in fact, by the end of this production, because he's had those issues with First National, yeah. um, it frustrates him so much that he does take finally full control of his films. And within a year, he's chatting with... Uh, with Pickford and Fairbanks. With and Doug Fairbanks Jr. and Mary Pickford. And they set up United Artists which is a company that still exists today and was most recently owned by Tom Cruise. Was it? I yeah. didn't know that. So United Artists became this big, the idea of it was a conglomeration of, of sort of independent filmmakers and they'd basically be given their free reign to make their films for their own studio and distribute it themselves. It was taking that full studio control to the, the I suppose to the stars, actually, in many respects. Yeah. So that's what in, th- that's the next step in, in Chaplin's story. This is a real transition moment in terms of Chaplin's career, but also in terms of cinema and Hollywood cinema in particular, which is a big part of the reason why we're covering this now, um, because we're at that that century, that turning point. You know, this this time a hundred years ago, he's in the middle of making this film. Mm-hmm. That's I mean, that's just amazing, mm-hmm. and, and to think that it still has that power a century on. Would that anything that we do have that same sort of longevity? Probably not. Well. I'm rooting for these podcasts. <laughs> Isn't that a scary thought that there's only 100 years from now I might actually listen to these when we're all long gone and dead? Speak for yourself. Well, that 141, that's young. By, least, by. At least I know some of my music will live on. This is true. In the, in the ether. And my books. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> right, uh, that is us uh, for this show. Uh, so if you've enjoyed, and even if you haven't, do get in touch. Let us know what you thought. Let us know what you think about the kid and Chaplin generally. Uh, and I'm sure we're going to come back to him again in the future. Uh, if you like the show, you know the crack. We are on social media. You'll find us as Cinepunked on Facebook and Twitter. 
You will also find us on Instagram as Cinepunk to Film. Uh, you find this podcast, it may be your first one, maybe you're subscribed already. If you haven't, do subscribe. You'll get us through all familiar uh, podcast retailers. And we're also on our website, cinepunk.com. Um, leave us a review on iTunes if you get the chance as well. We could do with some of those. It's always nice to hear what you think. Uh, now, uh, that is us for, for the moment. Until the next one. Um, as ever, my thanks to my lovely colleagues and friends and siblings. Uh, so, Ben, twiddling your knobs. Thank you. You didn't do a lot of twiddling that, that session. No, no, not a lot. You pre-twiddled. You kept him busy. <laughs> Dr. K? Thank you very much. As ever, make sure I get the title in. She shouts at me otherwise. Uh, you're the only person. It's, it's uncouth if I say it myself. Oh, I think it's in our contract now. Yes. In our Cinepunk contract. Well, I write the contract, so yeah. Where's my contract? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't really written any contracts. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yes, yeah, so as, as ever, uh, and I'm your host, Robert. And thank you very much for listening. Tune in again uh, very soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye.